Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Heute teste ich, ob man den McCrispy auch leise essen kann. Also vorsichtig. Nö. Unser lautestes Chicken, der neue McCrispy mit 100% aus dem Hähnchenfilet. Jetzt nur bei McDonald's. Love Janessa is the true crime podcast from the BBC World Service and CBC Podcasts, investigating the murky world of online romance scams. She was trying to get me to send her money. Catch up with the whole series now. Search for Love Janessa wherever you found this podcast. You win their hearts, you win their wallets. Hello. Reproductive science has come on in leaps and bounds in recent years with remarkable progress across a range of fertility treatments from IVF to the freezing of eggs. However, there are still concerns around the quality and availability of research into male fertility specifically. In fact, a study published this year suggests that sperm counts worldwide have dropped 62% in the past 50 years and there's no clear answer as to why that is. My guest today is working to change that. Professor Chris Barrett is the head of reproductive medicine at Nine Wells Hospital and the University of Dundee Medical School. He's dedicated his career to better understanding male infertility, driving breakthroughs in how to study spermatozoa dysfunctions, and most recently spearheading advances in developing a male contraceptive pill. He also heads up the Global Male Reproductive Health Initiative, trying to encourage more and better data reporting on the subject. It's been quite a journey from his younger self. The teenage Chris struggled academically and preferred partying to studying. But he's always believed in an individual's power to have an impact, advising those just starting out in the field, you're on the planet to change the world, so get on with it. Professor Chris Barrett, welcome to The Life Scientific. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I mentioned there that a recent study suggests sperm counts are plummeting all around the world. What do we know about why this is happening? The truth is we don't actually know why that is at the moment. The realistic answer to that is around the likes of environment, occupational exposure, lifestyle, but it's dissecting the relative contributions of that that has yet to be sort of delineated correctly. So how worried should we be? We should be very worried. <laughs> yeah. And I think this, the reason for that is there are obviously many, many sperm produced, but now the levels are getting to the stage where they will affect fertility. So there will be challenges coming in, people trying to get pregnant, which will be probably a result of this All decline. Right. So... What we need to do is investigate the causes and also try and mitigate mm. against that. And to what extent do you feel that male fertility research has been overlooked? Well, I think it has been overlooked because basically treatment with IVF is getting the sperm closer to the egg and, and the focus is really on the female with getting the eggs and, and preparing the eggs, etc. And the idea is that you just need one sperm or several sperm to get close to the egg or now even inject it into the egg. So really the diagnosis and the treatment of the male without a cystic conception has not really received mm. much focus because mm. you can effectively get around it if you have uh, that treatment available. But of course it's very costly and not often available. And you've previously pointed out that 
no effective, reversible and widely available form of contraception has been developed for the male since the condom. <laughs> In fact, aside from having a vasectomy, that's the that's only contraceptive for men. Yeah, and that's just incredible. The burden for contraception really relies largely on, on the female. And to have no developments in the male is just, I believe, unacceptable. All the data shows at the moment that actually men, as part of a couple, are willing to take a male piliform as available and safe and effective, etc. Mm. And that data is really encouraging. So we should be using that information to try and discover new male contraceptives. I, I think this is a true game-changer because currently contraceptive choice for the couple is still very restricted. There are millions and millions of unwanted pregnancies resulting in large-scale abortions which are often done in unsafe mm. conditions, etc. So this would be a real change in allowing reproductive choice and family planning. Mm. We're going to unpack the science later on, Chris, but let's go back to your childhood, growing up in the heartland of Wales in the market town of Welshpool. What was that like? It was a great place to, to grow up in. It was a small town, large village. It was in the countryside, very, very rural. We only had sort of one school and basically everybody went to it. Very safe, very enjoyable outdoor environment. Well, you were an only child, and I gather your parents were both extremely hard-working. Your dad was a car salesman, working seven days a week. Your mum had multiple jobs. Yeah, my mother worked as a partial lab technician and working as a nurse, and then she did some work as a cleaner. Work was a very strong ethic in the family, and my, my dad would go anywhere to sell a car. Mm -hmm. If the home went, he'd be gone, and uh, he just loved doing that. So... That sort of ethos was very much imprinted into me from quite young on. They even ran a pub for a few years. They did, yeah. That, <laughs> when I was about eight, we moved to a, to a pub just outside Welsh, from the countryside. And that was a very formative experience because as a child in, in the 70s, you could you know, spend time in a pub with adults. So that was a very instructive time. I, I learned you know, the benefits and the negative parts of alcohol, gambling, etc. So I think learning that early on in life was probably a positive experience and it's better to learn it earlier than later. I guess. Yes, that's true. Well, when you were 14, your parents separated and, and eventually divorced. You lived for a while with your mum and then when she got a job as a living matron in a school a few miles away, you moved in with your dad. Now, of course, as you said, he, he worked long hours. So I gather as a teenager, you had a lot of freedom. Yeah, I mean, it, it, a lot of freedom and probably too much, I guess, would be the, the current ethos. But we could go out a lot. I loved being with my friends, going to parties, etc. And, and as you're growing up at that age, everything's happening to you and you're having new experiences in life. And it was... It was a very enjoyable time. You said that faced with a choice of partying versus studying, the latter came a very poor second. So it's perhaps no surprise that you struggled a bit at school. I, I struggled. I struggled at school, yeah, for sure. Certainly when I was 16 to 18, that was a big challenge. I think it's a poor time to do, you know, life-changing exams. Yes. You yes. know, I, I'm not <laughs> the only one to come across that. So it was difficult to study. You know, I, I didn't put in the extra effort mm, that you, mm. is required, really. But you wanted to go to university. You also knew you probably weren't going to get the grades you needed to study the subject that was your first love, history. Yeah, no chance of that. <laughs> I was never going to get past that. So I, I did biology and or did zoology in, in Swansea. So I needed three Ds at A-level. And, I, you know, I got three Ds, so I just scraped in, I guess. Well, you, as you say, you ended up in Swansea and you studied zoology. 
Did you enjoy university life? Yes, as soon as I got into the train of it. I liked many of the lectures. They didn't inspire me a lot, but they were enjoyable. Mm. And Swansea was a great place to be. It was a relatively small city in those days, very friendly. There was lots going on. It was very much a step up from, from my hometown and mm. village of Welshpool. And it was really late on in your degree that you discovered a subject that ignited that passion, I think, that was missing from your learning. Yeah, botany and pelagic animals were really not exciting me too much. And then I went to one lecture which was on fertilisation and they showed a video of an egg and, and lots of sperm cells around. Look as if they were communicating with each other and, and trying to talk to the egg. And that just took me away. I, I was looking at it and I thought, this is fascinating stuff. Mm. Louise Brown was born a few years earlier oh, yes. for IVF. Yep. And therefore... I could see a translational aspect to the research work that was being done. Mm. The problem was, of course, that this was in your final undergraduate year, too late for you to apply to do a PhD, meaning you had to wait till the following year. So you decided to fill your time doing yeah. a PGCE, a, a teaching qualification. Yes, teacher training. In those days, it was a year's course to be a teacher trainer, so I did uh, physical education and biology. I was told you didn't have to work very hard, so I thought that'll, that'll suit me to like, arrange to do a PhD. But I found out I actually liked it. I really enjoyed teaching the kids, and actually I wasn't that bad at it. So I did contemplate being the teacher, but the desire to do a PhD got a hold over me, and I just couldn't get rid of it. And of course it was at this point that you were introduced to Jack Cohen, a renowned and by reputation rather eccentric uh, reproductive biologist based at the University of Birmingham. Yes, the, the people in Swansea, Roger Lysa, told me about uh, Jack Cohen, and we'd read some of his books when we were doing our undergraduate studies. And as soon as I went to see him, I went into this lab and he was busy arguing with a couple of his, his postdocs and students. And, you know, that was it, you know, the game over, really. <laughs> so he was quite famous in his field and he was a deep thinker. And that was just exactly the right place for me at that time. So he took you on as your... Yeah, it involved a bit of persuasion because we didn't have any money, so we had to apply for a grant and we had to write a proposal on, on sperm selection. Uh, but he got the grant in the end, and then I started mm -hmm. with him just as I finished my teaching. I gather you described Jack to my producer as Marmite. <laughs> some people liked his style, some people didn't. But he became a real mentor and a formative influence in your career. He had the biggest single influence on me in my life. I mean, he changed the way I thought about pretty much everything. He gave me the confidence to ask questions, but he was controversial. He was challenging everybody, and, you know, you had to be robust in your arguments against him. Mm. But for me, it was absolutely perfect, and, you know, I owe him pretty much everything in that way. Well, your focus during your PhD was on fertility. What exactly were you doing? Well, Jack had done some quite famous experiments where he'd recovered sperm cells from the oviduct of rabbits and he took that selected population, he'd put them back in to inseminate the rabbits again and they'd got up and fertilised the eggs despite being outnumbered by ejaculated cells. So his idea was that there was a special selection mechanism in the female reproductive tract. So my PhD was trying to look at that from the point of view of the male tract and then carry that over into the female reproductive tract. Mainly it was on mice. So, Chris Barrett, in 1985, you completed your PhD and landed a postdoctoral role in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at the University of Sheffield. Yes, I'd, I'd never really been to Sheffield, but Ian Cook got a, a large grant to look at holistically infertility, male and female, which was very unusual at the time. And he wanted to develop male reproductive health because that was under research. So, 
I arrived as a postdoc and it wasn't really a traditional postdoc. I wasn't following experiments per se. I wasn't discussing it with the supervisor. It was pretty much a blank sheet of paper. Here you go, work out the diagnosis and treatment wow. of male infertility. So that I struggled with at the beginning because I didn't quite know where to start. But once I got into it, then I could quite clearly see that this was an opportunity here to, to bring in people in the university and at the WHO to try and look at the diagnosis of, of male infertility. And the findings from that work, looking at how sperm acted in the female oviduct, this is of course the, the tube that carries the sperm through to the ovary, that work was 30 years ago and it's never been repeated. No, it's literally 30 years ago now that the original studies of the sperm transfer and the human tract were, were published and they're technically and now ethically challenging experiments. They are difficult to do. There's a lot of questions about robustness of the data, but we do need to understand how a sperm cell works in the female tract. Sperm cells don't work in the man, they work mm -hmm. in the female. That is a necessary understanding. And at the moment, it's very, very poorly understood. Well, in 1997, Chris, after more than a decade at Sheffield, you accepted a role heading up the brand new NHS Assisted Conception Unit at the University of Birmingham's Women's Hospital. And I gather some of your colleagues thought that move was rather controversial, that it wasn't the right thing for you to do. No, I, I think controversial was a mild word. They thought it was a fatal career move, really. Everybody told me that. Birmingham at the time was obviously a very prestigious university, was not doing much reproduction research work. In Sheffield, we were publishing lots of papers. We were, you know, flying high, basically. Mm. So to go to Birmingham seemed to be very much a downward step. But from my point of view, I could sort of see potential with the university, and I knew some of the people there from doing a PhD. Uh, I knew the hospital wanted to invest in research, and, and I knew they'd got a good IVF clinic. So I thought if I can marry those two, I'm in with a good chance of, of making an impact. But how did it go, building a whole department up from scratch? It's, it's, I quite like doing that. I think probably blank sheet of paper is where I work best. It's the innovation of that. It's the newness of it. It's this trying to stimulate other people to look at reproduction. Uh, one of the people there, for example, Steve Publikova, who's a really good friend of mine, he was working on bones. So I went to see him and I said, look, working on calcium and bones is a waste of time. Bones don't move. You know, it's not the next generation. You know, this is what you need to look at these sperm cells. They move, you know. And, and suddenly you got excited and that, you know, that was it. So if you can imprint people like that... Just inspiring and, people. And to, try and yeah. sort of get their skill base to, to move to reproduction, to me that's, mm. that's really exciting. You were also allowed the space to do more commercial work and develop in particular a home sperm analysis kit. Yes, this was always something I'd been interested in because currently, in fact, and actually then patients needed to attend the hospital produce a sample, sometimes wait weeks and weeks before they got a result. So it seemed to me obvious, well, if they could have a semen sample analysed in the comfort of their own home, surely that would be a, a no-brainer. The challenge was trying to detect motile sperm in sufficient numbers and then giving a visual result to that. You've got to look at the motility, but sperm numbers on their own are poorly predictive. So you've got to have something that looks at the motion in the cell. That's dependent on temperature, so you know you have to have an internal temperature control, etc. So it was, building it took us about nine years, really. But in the end, the product was on sale in Boots and Walgreens, so that was very exciting. How does it work, then? Everything has to be designed so there's only two steps for the man. That was what we were told by the ergonomic people. You, know, you can't have more than two steps. Men can't handle that. Right. <laughs> only two buttons. So they produce a sample in, in the pot and pest a button. That was it. 
and the sperm cells, if they're warm enough, will then swim up a tube and it's detected by a lateral flow. And Which we CD all understand these yeah, days. <laughs> exactly. So, and then you can visualise that. It's exactly the same as the COVID test. Right. Positive right, control right. on that. And if you've got 10 million motile cells, you'd have a line. Because it was quite complicated to design and build, it's not that economically viable, and you need new technology to look at it now. But at that time, that was very exciting. Yeah, yeah. Well, around that time, you were involved in some groundbreaking work that really changed the world of fertility studies. You basically showed that the classic mouse paradigm of fertilisation, you mentioned that you'd worked on, on mice for your PhD, that was the traditional way to do the research, but in fact wasn't suitable for human comparison. We're going to get into some technical detail here, so... Let's start with this, the zona pellucida. Talk me through what that is and how it fits into your research. The zona pellucida is the outer shell of the egg, like the outer shell of the tennis ball, for want of a better word. And the sperm cells come up and interact with the outside of the tennis ball, they bind to it and then they get stimulated, basically. Many studies have shown that men, part of their sperm dysfunction is that ability to bind and then get stimulated. So we wanted to try and study that in much more detail. And you can do that down a microscope, you can see it, but of course it's very rare to be able to get human eggs to do these experiments. So we tried for a long time to produce a recombinant zona pellucida, and at that time the mouse fertilisation studies were showing there's three zona proteins, mm. and number three was the one you needed to look at. So we tried to produce that in culture, and there was lots of challenges with that. The data just didn't fit with the paradigm, really. Mm. So with time, I was talking to a bioinformatic person, David Hughes, who basically started to look at the literature and say, look, this idea of three proteins in the zona is completely wrong. In humans, you've got four, and that's why your experiments in vitro are not working. So You were assuming the humans were like mice, we, I, they only I, had three. Na I'd naturally assumed, yeah. fairly wrongly. And therefore, the whole paradigm of fertilisation, the binding to the zona pellucida, the interaction, was not like mouse at all. And therefore, these four proteins were key, and how they fitted together was going to be a large research topic in itself. But showing that it was different and showing that the mouse was not a good model for the human because now it's well accepted, but at the time it's very controversial. And I think using animals, rodents, etc., for any type of reproduction, for the diagnosis of infertility and for contraceptive work, has big questions for me mm. personally. You published that paper in 2004, and as you say, your findings were controversial. Was that because you know other researchers in the field didn't believe there were four proteins in the zone? No, I, I think they didn't. No, I, I think people didn't believe it because they were so imprinted by this three-protein mm. model. But David, who was a bioinformatics person, I mean, without him, we wouldn't have come mm. across that. So he, he was the brains behind that, for sure. But Linda then did the proteomics. This is Linda Lefebvre, your postdoc. Yeah, with the postdoc. And she did a great job of looking at gene expression and the proteins in the zona. And she found that the four proteins were there. But it took time to get traction. I think it's a good description. Mm. Getting it published was a nightmare, but it still eventually got traction and now it's well accepted. And it really changed how the field approached clinical studies. I think it did. I think we moved very much away from using mice as the golden subject. We needed to do a lot more human work and understand humans. That's definitely where the field is being pushed at the moment. Well, in 2007, you left Birmingham to move up to Scotland, joining your current employer, University of Dundee. At Dundee, you started a project looking at what signals are given to the sperm when they get into the female tract. And that involved a specific part of the spermatozoa called catspur. 
What's that? So this is a very complicated iron channel that allows uh, calcium as a particular ion to go into the cell. And by ion, you mean I-O-N, an, an atom with an electric charge? Yes. So it jumps into the cell along right. the channel catsper. And that then controls a lot of the, the sperm function, particularly some types of movement of the cells. And I was particularly interested in, are there abnormalities in this channel? And if there are abnormalities in this channel, what's their incidence? And can we actually then get get round them by giving certain compounds to then make the cells fertile. Or the flip side of that, of course, of contraception, can we get mm. compounds to block to then develop a contraceptive? So this is to do with how the sperm moves? Yes. It, it, it's, it's, it's engine? It's, yeah, it's a manifestation of a particular movement. So the way I describe it, sperm normally move in a very linear fashion. It's like listening to classical music, I guess. And then they sort of listen to rock music, sort of ACDC or something, and then they really get excited. And that transition... <laughs> Head-banging sperm uh, comes uh, to uh, mind. Right, yes, exactly. <laughs> that, that transition from classical music to head-banging in sperm is very important. The cell needs to do that to really progress up the female tract and interact with the egg. And this iron channel is thought to be important in that transition. So we were trying to delineate that clinically and we could use that information for fertility treatment and for contraception. Mm. Well, that work was published in 2013 in the Journal of Biological Chemistry. This was a big hit and it led to you thinking about whether catsper interruption could be the basis for contraception in men. Yeah, I think people have talked about this before. They didn't have the data on, on humans. And I think we then identified a particular patient who basically didn't fertilise eggs, the sperm was swimming normally, but they didn't undergo this head-banging motion in response to a certain right. stimulus. We then looked at the genetics of that patient and found a very small abnormality in Catsper. So that was the first demonstration in humans that interruption of the Catsper channel could be used for contraception as a proof of principle. Seeing that there is this abnormality, how do you capitalise on that? So we thought, well, well, how could we study interruption of the channel by adding drugs and then seeing if it could change the way the sperm move, etc.? And we were doing lots of experiments, but we hadn't really cracked the idea of doing this on a large scale. If you're going to screen for lots of compounds and how they affect sperm cells, you've got to do in a large library. You need thousands of compounds at a time to do this. And we were doing, I think, about 100 over six months. So we were were never going to make the progress you needed to to see how we could interrupt these channels. And we tried a huge number of surrogate ways of doing that, but we couldn't work it. So sperm cells are very different. They don't do transcription. They don't do translation. You can't culture them over days. They only last seven days in total. They're very strange cells. So there were challenges. It wasn't until we were sitting down with colleagues in life sciences, particularly Paul Wyatt, and he basically said, look, why don't you sort of use drug screening on an industrial scale that we're developing here? We've got specialised microscopes that will do this. Let's test that. But of course, that requires a substantial amount of money and we just couldn't get the money until actually I saw an advert in in one of the journals from the Gates Foundation saying, how could we look at breakthrough technology related to male contraception, particularly looking at the sperm cells? I thought, that's ideal. That's exactly what we want to do. So we wrote about one A4 page proposal and then we got the money. (laughs) So that was one of those really uh, surprising moments when somebody gives you the money to do something which is incredibly risky. I felt was incredibly risky. So using this dysfunctioning Catsper idea for a contraceptive pill is the opposite to diagnosing someone who actually has 
a yes. dysfunctioning Casper, yeah. you know, who want to be fertile. Yeah, it's, to me, they're flip sides of the same coin. So diagnosing the men with Casper abnormalities can be done, but it's not a routine assay by any stretch in the imagination. Right, right. So when it comes to the interruption of Casper and other channels on the sperm and proteins, you need a screening system to be able to do that. The money that you got from the Gates Foundation, nearly a million dollars, was a big investment, but you've had more money come in since then. Yeah, yeah. so I think once we'd shown we had breakthrough technology to screen large number of compounds, the Gates Foundation then said, OK, we'll give you a lot more to try Mm. and investigate drug screening in the sperm cell. Of course, there are inevitably other teams working on this around the world with funding coming from various organisations, pharmaceutical companies... Is there a lot of pressure when you're in this sort of research race? Yeah, I mean, research is highly competitive, you know. Part of that, you need that. I think that is an important aspect of helping Mm. us to go forward. Well, the field is certainly moving very fast. When would you say we will have a male pill? I think we'd be able to start clinical trials in the next few years, I would imagine. Obviously, that then Mm. depends on safety, because safety is key to contraception, because, of course, there's no pathology, unlike in other diseases. So the bar is a lot higher. But I would imagine that we would see that in the next few years. Well, I know, Chris, in the midst of all this uh, excitement in your research, you found a good way to let off steam, because at the age of 55, so about eight years ago, you took up taekwondo. And today you're a black belt. How on earth did that come about? Well, that's uh, my two sons were involved in taekwondo, and I was basically sitting in the car park while they were in the lessons, and that got a bit boring. So the instructor, who, who was just an incredible teacher, Mr. P, said, "Well, why don't you sit at the back of the class and you know do a little bit of stuff? You know, there's no pressure; just you know have a bit of fun." And, and it grew from there, really. But age is very much against you. Never sure. mind age, Chris. You recently had a hip replacement. <laughs> Surely that's impacted your ability. Uh, yes, I can't lift my <laughs> leg above my knee at the moment. So attack and defence don't exist. OK. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I'm resigned to teaching. I think that's the answer. So within the next decade or so, we could have a male contraceptive pill. What's the next mountain for fertility science to climb? Well, I think for the next mountain for male fertility science to climb is to get a much better diagnosis. So at the moment, we just count sperm and look at them down a microscope. We've been doing that for almost 150 years, and that has not progressed. So a better diagnosis is fundamental. And the flip side of that, at this moment in time, there are very, very few options for men apart from assisted conception, where you put sperm close to eggs and you need effectively an operation to do that. We need to be able to give a series of pills to men. You know, Mr. Jones, you have pill X. Mr. Evans, you have pill Y to improve your sperm and therefore you conceive naturally. And that's really what couples want. They don't really want to go to an Mm. IVF clinic. They want to be able to take a pill at home to make their sperm better. Mm. That's what we have to achieve. What I've found fascinating about this conversation, Chris, is that we flip between the two, haven't we? The red pill and the blue pill, as it were. People who have fertility problems who want to conceive, and then there's the male contraceptive pill where you want to stop someone from getting... Yes, for me it's two sides of the same coin, but for many other people it's just diametrically opposed. But by looking at patients who are subfertile, by learning from that, we can then say, okay, these may be pathways we can interrupt for contraception, because clearly... We've got proof of principle it works. So that's the way that I think of these things. But I can see that when I talk to people about that, they look at me as if I've lost something, really. (laughs) Well, this programme will set people straight, I hope. Chris Barrett, thank you very much for sharing your life scientific. It's an absolute pleasure. 
The Explanation is the podcast from the BBC World Service that goes beyond the spin, exploring the important questions about long-running stories and the latest global news. An honest explanation of the events shaping our lives. Search for The Explanation wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Bereit für unser lautestes Chicken? Der neue McCrispy mit 100% aus dem Hähnchenfilet. Jetzt probieren. Nur bei McDonalds. Ba -da -ba -ba.